If you have God's word, I'd love for you to take it and turn to Mark chapter number 8 this morning. Mark chapter number 8. Lord Will, we'll finish this portion of Mark up this morning. And I pray that it's a blessing to you. You would appreciate your prayers. I don't usually ask this, but uh, thinking of uh, taking an excursion starting next week to um, just more systematically preach a short series on the church. Um, some time ago I did that with the family. I think it, I pray it was a blessing to many of you. I just saw in our church need just for um, reorienting our thoughts and minds and um, maybe being reminded of some old truths. Maybe some families needed to be reminded of some new truths in their heart. And um, I trust it was a blessing. And God really just worked in many of your lives, and I thank God for that. I think now um, in our culture, in our church culture, maybe even in our church, uh, we, may, we need to be reminded of what the church is, you know, um, the gathering of God's people. Um, and I, I've been praying and thinking about how to prepare a church for persecution, you know, in the days that are coming. And it's like taking your little family and, I see so many people today with a um, with a mentality of fear, anxiety, and worry, such that they even you know um, abandon the idea of having children, moving forward in the world. You know, um, I think that's a wrong attitude. The children are a blessing from the Lord. God's you know given them to us, and when He does, we we thank the Lord and we move forward. You know, um, but we must know how to prepare them. We must know how to train them. We must know how to raise them up and send them out into the world like the arrows that God um, commanded us to shape, you know? Thinking about my own family and thinking about the culture and what may be coming down the pike, and I think about my own children, and I think, I don't feel sorry for them. I think this is a great time to serve and honor the Lord. I think this is a great opportunity for men and fathers and for churches to raise up families that will stand uh, strong, stand fast, stand sure. Um, we, have to, we have to do that through discipleship. I have to do that through training them up. Um, part of that, part of that, um, part of that onus falls on me as a pastor of a church. But at the same time, I'm thinking about my family. And I'm thinking about protecting them. I'm not afraid, in the sense that I'm worried that, um, you know, the persecution that comes down the pike. I, I'm worried that they're not ready. I'm worried that I've not prepared them. I'm worried that I've not discipled them. Um, and I worry about you. I worry about the churches all across our land. Um, or, get, or being caught by surprise, not recognizing or realizing that, that, that this is what Christianity always has been. We are an anomaly um, in church history and, and, and geographically. You know, pandemics, viruses, church persecution, things of that nature has always been a reality for God's people. Um, it's always been a reality for the world. Um, and so the danger doesn't come in those things. Those things don't worry me. The things that worry me um, um, is the condition of much of the church and our own lives and families. Um, one of the things that I think that we need as a church um, is to know what a church is in preparation, what it is to be. We need to know where to stand. We need to know things that we can't give up. We need to know what is essential, you know, the essential nature. We're talking about essential businesses, the essential nature of the church, what it is, um, what Jesus Christ came to die to save, what we can give and what we can't. And I think in the midst of then we'll know what's worth dying for then we'll know what's worth taking a stand for. Um, and I think the church is worth dying for. I think the church is worth taking a stand for. I think that's exactly what Jesus Christ did, and I think that we should example 
and be an emblem, exemplify that character nature and the joy that comes with it. So please pray for me that the Lord would direct my thoughts and, and um, emphasize the things that he um, desires to emphasize and that we may, that he may prepare us for the coming days, not this year, in the coming years, and if not us, our children. Um, it's coming. In a sense, it's already here. So be in prayer. If you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. We'll begin our reading in verse 34. Uh, this morning our emphasis will be at the last portion of the text in verse number 38. You read these words by, the, by, by Mark. Uh, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or, whatever, or whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again just as a people who need you. Father, what, what a blessing it is just to talk to you. What a blessing it is that Christ would come and give his life on Calvary, Father, so that we may know you and to know you is eternal life. Father, not a life in eternity, but eternal life. It, it, it begins now. It began that day you saved us, Father, and instilled in us something that is otherworldly, something that is beyond us. Father, what a blessing it is just to know you. Father, that's eternal life. So, Father, um, part of that is abiding in Christ, knowing his word. So, Father, as we come to you this morning in your word, um, I pray that you would just utilize it for your honor and for your glory, God, in a way that is just that eternal, otherworldly, supernatural, Father, beyond thinking, that you would conform us to the very image of Christ, Lord, that you would take it to the depths of our heart and that you would enable us to... Um, kill things, Father, that we could never kill before, um, that you would give root things, Father, that were never there before, um, Father, that you would just make us more like your Son. Uh, we recognize, Lord, that the Word of God is like a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, so, Father, guide us. We realize that the, um, the flesh of man is as grass and it withers away, but the Word of God endureth forever. Father, we realize that it um, converts the unconverted, that it makes the simple wise, Father, and that for the people of God, it should be this morning sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. So, Father, we pray that you would incline our hearts to your understanding, Father, that you would unite our hearts to you in fear and whatever well you um, lay before us this morning, that we would be satisfied as we drink from it. Father, we, um, we trust you this morning, Father, with uh, the word of God, and we trust you this morning with our hearts. God, you accomplish whatever you want to accomplish. Whether it's rebuke, whether it's um, stinging correction, Lord, or whether it's just coming alongside us to encourage uh, the downcast and the brokenhearted. Father, we recognize with one sermon, with one text, you can accomplish all those things in all the minds of all your people. So, Father, we leave that to you to do that work and just pray that you'd help us to be faithful in this moment to the text. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. 
And we come back to the text. This is our third sermon out of this portion of text. And, I, and we took our time, and I'm not ashamed of that, um, for, the, for the specific reason that I think that it um, gives us a, um, a stinging correction as to what much of the world thinks concerning Christianity. The Lord Jesus comes and He, um, and he corrects us. And he gives us what biblical Christianity truly looks like. I mean, we've spent some time just delineating that, trying to um, emphasize that, trying to drive home that. Um, because what much of the world thinks today concerning uh, Christianity, uh, I think, is, uh, is misled at worst, or at best, and just deceptive and demonic at worst. Um, much of the world has a false understanding of what biblical Christianity is, how a man comes to Christ, how a woman comes to Christ, as well as, um, as what the Christian life uh, looks like. And the Lord Jesus is a realist. He's here with us, and he teaches us um, exactly what that looks like. And, um, and we've tried to kind of emphasize a lot of those things. And in a sense, he's giving the gospel here, you know. I understand what Paul writes to, to Corinth, that the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. That's the basis upon which any man has ever and will ever uh, be saved. Um, Jesus is here speaking about how a man comes to that, how a man comes to Christ and what that looks like. And I, I don't think that there's a fundamental difference necessarily uh, between the, the way a man initially comes and the way that he stays. Um, that Jesus Christ uh, works a work in his heart and his life, giving him new life and faith and repentance. And the same faith and repentance that, that births him into the family of God um, is the same faith and repentance that keeps him unto that day um, of salvation. It's all a work of God. But that's, that faith and repentance is definitely a work in the believer um, that produces something of him. Um, and that's exactly what we see uh, salvation is not by works at all. There is nothing that you could ever do uh, in this world that would ever attain you any stature or standing before God. So don't misunderstand um, what I'm saying this morning or have said over the last few weeks. Um, but that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We maintain that. When the gospel goes forth and permeates in a heart, um, it inevitably and eminently produces um, fruit of righteousness. And the demand that is laid upon that man who has a new heart um, is that he would deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Christ. Um, and we had some stinging uh, rebukes as to um, the natural man over the past couple of weeks. Because many people may ask in our day and culture, um, and I've asked the same questions in days past, what makes Jesus so worthy or why should I even... Or why should I deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus? And he tells them to follow him, and he gives them the reasons why. Um, why should you deny yourself? Um, Jesus tells them to find life in Christ. Jesus wasn't teaching some morbid, depressing way of life that he, when he commands you to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Sometimes we can mistake in that. Um, but he says that if you lose your life, you will save it. That actually in Christ is where you find true life. It's in a deep understanding of who Christ is. It's to realize that you're an image bearer of God and that you were created for a particular purpose 
And that purpose is the glory and the honor of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Himself. So when you think in abandoning uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and denying Him other than yourself and walking your own way, you think that you're Lord over your own life and that you found something unique and you found something true and you found something worth living for. Um, Jesus says, Solomon said last week, and, and all the New Testament writers, the apostles are just overwhelmingly um, clear um, that you've not found anything at all other than death. Um, you're in a constant state of dying. You were born into this world, sinful. Uh, Romans chapter 5 teaches us as a result of that sin, death came upon all men, um, and thus all men sinned. That men without Christ are not men that, live, that, that are living, they are men that are dying. Day in and day out, deceived. Um, naturally deceived by their own selves, thinking that they're living a life worth living, um, and in pursuit of saving that life, whatever that life looks like, their, their whole world um, that they want to gain, um, they actually lose their life ultimately in the end. But they've lost it all along. That's when we come to the truth of God and it's revealed to us and we see the glory of Jesus Christ and our, uh, our, uh, our own depravity. The only, old, the only appropriate response Jesus tells us is that we would deny ourselves, take up our, Christ, our cross and follow um, Christ. Follow His example is what He means. Follow His Word. And uh, so why should we do that? To find life in Christ. The pursuit of self will end in the loss of self, the loss of life. But to lose your life for Christ's sake in the gospel is true life. You should deny yourself, Jesus tells us, because you were created in the image of God with an eternal soul. And the worth and value of that soul demands that you follow Jesus. We read that um, in the question that Jesus asks them. Um, and today we'll finish the passage with the final reason that Jesus gives us here of why we should deny ourselves. Take up an instrument of death and live for Jesus for the rest of our lives. Be ready to die for Him and to do it with smiles on our faces because it should be our greatest joy to live and die for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Why should we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ? Jesus tells us here in verse 38, because when He comes, He will judge the living and the dead. And those who have not followed Him will be denied and rejected by Him. But those who have followed Him will enter into His eternal glory. In other words, the reality of the last day demands that we follow Jesus in this life so that He will own us in the next. That we own Him here. And He owns us in the next as well as here. He uses some very gripping terminology and imagery in this portion of Scripture, verse 38. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. And I think the first thing that really strikes our attention, or should strike our attention, or at least stroke my attention, um, was the terminology and the imagery to drive that very truth home in our hearts and to illustrate um, the rejection and acceptance of Christ to all of men. And that word is ashamed. 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 What does it mean to be ashamed? I think it's so much easier to describe than it is to define. You know, some have defined it literally. To be ashamed means to experience or to feel shame or disgrace because of some particular event or some activity, and probably in this context, um, we could say of a person. Um, the word has a prefix on it that um, is added to the word shame. It's not shame um, in and of itself. It's 
Uh, it causes our attention to focus upon that which causes the shame. The, the shame here is, is directly tied to something that causes it. And that's the focus of, of the passage. Um, it's, it's, it's really hard to define exactly what the term um, shame means, though. I mean, it's a universal affection. Um, it's something that we all understand, even though we can't quite define it as extensively as we would like. Um, so instead of defining it necessarily, um, because inevitably it's going to be like love. You know, we, we try to define love, and it's, it's almost impossible. You can't, it's, it's inexhaustible, but uh, the believer and the unbeliever in some sense understand what the term love means. They know how it feels. They know what the experience is. You know, even an unbeliever understands that. The problem is not that they don't love. The problem is that they love the wrong things. They understand what that is, their ultimate affection. Um, it, it's universal in that sense. And it, it culminates upon the, uh, the wrong object for the unbeliever. And our great love, God is love. And it manifests himself to us. And we are to reciprocate that love. Um, shame is similar in that sense. That it's hard to exhaust the definition of what shame truly means. But whenever you speak it to somebody... Um, or you feel it, it's, it's, it's undeniable. You don't have to come necessarily and, and ask, you know, what is this thing that has come upon me? You know, it's, um, it's, it's universal in that sense. So let's describe it. Um, it's somewhat when something happens to us or we do something, um, let's say inappropriate, and we're ashamed of it. Um, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, can't even make eye contact, it's averted, our cheeks blush with embarrassment, and we wish that the ground would simply swallow us up and cause us uh, to disappear. Why? Because we've done something wrong, generally, publicly, and we've lost um, respect or trust from those who've previously respected us. So we, we just kind of fall into our shell. We can also be ashamed of uh, because of others, because of their actions whom someone that we've held in high esteem or respected, and when they've done something of um, disrepute, this can be shameful by association. A son can shame his father, or a father can shame his son, and vice versa. We all know what it feels like. It's so basic. It's so near to our hearts. It's, we've all been embarrassed. We've all said something wrong. We've all failed horribly. You know, we've all done something inappropriate. Um, we felt everyone looking at us with their eyes peering into our souls with disapproval, even if they had any idea of what we did at all. Um, we just feel contempt. And even if they weren't ashamed, um, we punished ourselves enough that, they, that we thought that they were, and um, we mutilated our, ourselves. It's disgrace. It makes our, our, our heads hang low um, in a similar way. The, the contrast just as honor, as dignity, as confidence, as pride makes us walk with our heads high and tall. Um, shame just totally pulverizes and tumults our spirit where it even takes on physiological effects um, at times. This is a normal feeling, often born out of the conscience that God gave us. There are certain things, um, it, it's appropriate. It's not 100% um, totally bad. Um, it's actually, in some sense, a grace that God has extended to us in our consciences. For example, there are some things we should be ashamed of. Isaiah one twenty seven says we should be ashamed of our idolatry. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her, in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. But they shall all be ashamed of the oaks that you desire. And you shall blush for their gardens that you have chosen. 
For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water, and the strong shall come, become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. It's speaking in the text, the idea there in Isaiah 1 is um, speaking of idolatry of the people and the things that they will be ashamed of that they used um, to facilitate their idolatry. Um, they should be ashamed. Romans 6.20, Paul there um, speaks to us that there's a shame upon previous sins um, that is legitimate. He says, For you were once slaves of sin. You were free in regard to righteousness. He asks this question, What fruit did you have in, in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things are death. We might argue even that the Apostle Paul understood very vividly what shame was like and 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And oftentimes he recounts in the book of Acts, as well as through his epistles um, to the church, just the shame that he had to be a murderer of Christians, just the shame that he had to be a blasphemer of, of God. And some, there is a sense in which um, this is even God's grace in our depraved lives to bring to the forefront our sinfulness, such that the conscience cries out that you're wrong and that the blushing of a man and a woman is hope because it generally indicates that the conscience is not seared and that the law of God remains tender upon the heart. Children um, understand this. They, become, they come out so tender. They come out um, not innocent, but their hearts often so tender. Um, and over a period of time, you know as well as I do, that um, through culture, through life, through um, parenting, through the lack of parenting, through the world, um, oftentimes a conscience is seared and, and they no longer blush at the things that they once blushed at. That's the great peril ahead. Um, the great peril ahead of those who do not blush or carry any shame. Um, it's almost a judgment upon a people. Jeremiah 5, 14 and 15 says, They've also healed the hurt of my people, saying, peace, slightly peace, peace. You remember that passage? Uh, there's people there that's crying peace, peace, when there is no peace. The following verse says this, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. Nor did they know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. One of the great problems I see, uh, not only in our society, but in every society, and, but, but particularly here and now, is just a large level, is a lack of shame evidenced by an inability to blush. America should be ashamed. Shame often precedes repentance, abandonment of self, and faith in Christ. The man who has no shame is a man who's marred the law of God on his heart, seared his conscience, and uh, it no longer cries, to which it no longer cries out, Stop. You're wrong. There's a fire. There's a cliff. Don't go over. But men laugh and they smile and they jump over the cliff today. Uh, so much ungodlessness, uh, so much debauchery, and a number of other things. This is often when God, an indicator of when God gives a man or a nation over to themselves, when they lack the ability to blush. Um, when sin is ever before them and they laugh and they scoff and they mock and um, they celebrate, as Romans 1 says, um, even uh, sin. In that sense, shame is good. Shame is good. Um, but Jesus here is not talking about that kind of shame. Not the shame of past sins. Um, but here the shame of a person, a whoever. The whoever here, he says, for whoever or whosoever 
is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of him the son of man also will be ashamed it speaks of a shame of a man a whoever a woman a whoever a child a whoever and then also uh, the christ the son of the living god and it's just mind-boggling as he condescends in language to think that um, he could be ashamed that he could share in that that that, that universal um, affection. And we understand that he doesn't repent like a man repents, and he's probably not ashamed like a man is ashamed. But God often gives us these things and condescends and uses these things so that we can gra- grasp at least a little bit of what he's talking about. So that we can see the great danger of it, that if we know how we feel, um, imagine if you could purify that and make that holy and make that righteous and, and imagine what that type of shame feels like as he looks upon the world and he looks upon those who are ashamed of him, the shame that he must have. You can imagine the feeling that's going to happen with um, untold multitudes one day whenever they say, as in Matthew chapter 7, they stand before Him with all of their accolades and He says, Depart from Me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. And He's going to do it with shame. He's going to do it with shame. And the audience here is the religious crowd. It's like Matthew chapter 7. It's those who are religious. You know? Um, why? Because atheists aren't ashamed of Christ. They, they could care less. They have no shame about him. He's talking to a religious crowd, um, at least to some extent, who have a, a, a relationship with Christ, um, to, to Pharisees, to Sadducees, to, to, to his disciples and to others, those who, who should not be ashamed, but whenever, um, such as Peter, um, are, are, are questioned, that they will cower down in shame. Um, he's talking about a whoever. The whoever contains the ability to be ashamed and is ashamed. But he's not ashamed of past sins. He's ashamed of me, my words, Christ, and the Logos, the Word of God. This, is, this whoever is ashamed of Christ. Matthew 10, 32 and 33 gives us a little bit more insight into the details of the ashamed. Um, he says, quote, Therefore, whoever confesses me before me and him, I shall also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So why should you deny yourself? Because not to is to deny Jesus. Um, why would a person do that? Because he's ashamed. He's ashamed of Christ. If that be the case, on that great day, he will be ashamed of that person and thus deny him interest into eternal, glorious bliss. Where? Ashamed of Christ, where? The text tells us in Matthew, before men. That's the context. That's the environment. Remember when we described ashamed? Made you hang your head low, your eyes averted, your shuffled gait, your awkward sweaty palms, your stuttered speech, to where if you were omnipotent, you would take yourself to the other side of the earth or crawl into a hole somewhere. Is that the way that Christ makes you feel? Of course not this morning in the context of other believers, but before men. I hope not. I mean, when you think about Him, He's wonderful, He's majestic, He's mighty, He's Savior, He's glorious, He's powerful, He's patient, He's unchanging, He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the omnipotent, omniscient, loving, forgiving one. If that's the case, why would a man be ashamed of Him? Like, if that's who He is, again, why would He? And this is for us to ask the question, am I ashamed? Not am I ashamed here this morning in the context necessarily of worship, although that may be true, but also in the context of before men. Uh, Maybe we should ask the question if that's um, who Jesus is, that honorable, pure, holy, righteous 
um, glorious Savior of all heaven and earth, the Creator of all the world. Why in the world would a man be ashamed? Why would a religious person, why would a Christian like you or me be ashamed? What makes us, or what could make us ashamed of Christ? The eternal Lord of heaven and earth, the Savior of our souls. And the text gives us the key. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, Jesus sets before us the foolishness of being ashamed of Christ. To be ashamed of Christ within the context of a generation described as adulterous and sinful is the height of all folly. Because the generation that is adulterous and sinful is a generation that is slated for judgment. That's the idea. The wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. They will appear, but they will not be left standing. And to let a generation like that influence you and me in such a way that makes us ashamed of Christ is the height of all folly. It is the blind leading the blind. Um, it is coming under um, someone who is, is walking towards the cliff and it's clearly there. And you as a Christian know it. But be, un, under their influence, you'll still follow behind them. A generation as such is a generation without faith in God. It's rebellion and they walk that way. And, um, and Jesus is saying here that it's all too common that Christians, that Christianity, disciples of Christ... Um, are so influenced by an adulterous and ge sinful generation um, that instead of following Christ, they'll follow them. Now that's natural. Um, that's natural to go with the flow. It's natural to love self. That's a natural disposition. Jesus uses this warning because He knows that even though it's ultimate folly, that we are foolish men who have a tendency to allow the sinful and adulterous generation to overwhelm our souls, to make, us to make us ashamed of Christ, such that we'll cower down. And it doesn't really make any difference of whether or not you live then or now, in this generation or the generations to come. The words of Jesus are timeless, so that this is true of all men everywhere. You know, Sometimes we want to think that this generation is worse than any other generation. You know, but the truth is, is that all generations have been generations that have been um, surrounded by godlessness. The godlessness just takes different forms at different times. What happens is that the morals of the day in the New Testament era as well as today and the generations previous and those to come um, stand at odds with the morals of Christ. Um, it's unbelief and battle with belief. It's an age-old battle for our affections. Why do I feel the pressure to conform to the world more than Christ? To smile or to smirk at a blasphemous or inappropriate joke at work or to cower down when someone blasphemes the name of Christ or in fear veil the fact that we're a Christian. Why? Because we are generally more influenced by the prevailing culture. And our affections and actions are often more dictated by the fear of man than the fear of God. Man is often the source of our shame. The fear of man. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be saved. J.C. Ryle, reading his commentary on this very verse, he says, There are thousands of men who would face a lion, storm a beach, if duty called them to fear nothing, and yet would be ashamed of the thought of being thought as religious, would not dare to avow that they desired to please Christ rather than man. Wonderful indeed is the power of ridicule. Marvelous in, is the bondage in which men live to the opinion of the world. End quote. And isn't that the truth? Especially in our area and in the Bible Belt and in many other places. And how many times would a man go to war you know, for his country, for his family, for his nation, for his self, 
Um, uh, but, but when the day comes, like Peter, um, he denies our Lord and Savior three times. Man, he's willing, he is willing to take a guy's ear off, you know? Um, and yet he denies the Lord three times, one of whom stands as tall as a little girl, and he cowers down. John 12, 42 and 43 says, Nevertheless, even among you the rulers, many believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess Him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Why do we struggle with it so much? Why is peer pressure so overwhelming? Why do we conform? Because we love the applause of men. We love the pleasures of the world. We love the accolades. We love the smiles. We love the affirmation. We love the approval of men more than the praise and the approval and the affirmation of the Lord. This is man's natural disposition. Because man loves to be God. Therefore, he'll do whatever it is um, that he can to, ask, uh, to, to exalt that and to avoid um, any pain or shame that may come um, with Christ. What does it look like? What does um, being ashamed of Jesus look like? It, it looks like rejection of Jesus. It's that simple. But it's not all that simple, I don't, I don't believe. When we think of this, we might think of the time when Peter again was ashamed of Christ and denied Him three times. He was clearly ashamed. We might think of all the times that we've had opportunity to speak up for Christ. And we've blushed. And we've crawled into a hole. And our hearts have fluttered. And our throats fell into our chests. You know? And we even reasoned in our own mind and thinking that, you know, maybe um, this isn't the time. You know, I need to pick my battles. How often have we remained silent as others rail and rant against the triune God, the Savior of all the world, the blessed Savior of all mankind, the one who died for our sins. And we've thought, well, I need, to, I, need to, I need to pick my battles. This is not the one. How often have we remained silent as co-workers malign and lie concerning of Christ? And we just stand by. How many times have people asked questions and said things um, and said, aren't you a, a Christian? And you just sink back into your chair, shamed. This is part of what Christ means. And the point is, is that Christ was not ashamed of you, therefore you should not be ashamed of Him. He was beaten and battered and bruised and vindicated and He was lied on and He was maligned and He hung there upon a tree and He gave His life for me. He was not ashamed and neither should we. But they'll ridicule you, they'll mock you and they'll laugh at you. We know. We know. Part of the rejection here of Christ is a rejection or a failure and neglect to... Um, to, 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 to make your faith public. That faith is public. That's what Jesus says. He says, if you won't own me before men, I won't own you before the Father. The implication is, is that your faith is public. You know, um, So many Christians today, and I've fallen into this in days past, and maybe even days present, who knows, maybe days future. Um, because I, what I'm not arguing here is, is, is a single moment of, of disarray or denial. You know, um, Who's the whoever here? The whoever is the one that makes this a character of life. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a continual, persistent, habitual principle um, that characterizes his life as a rejecter of Jesus. What I'm not saying here this morning, like Peter, is that if you failed one time, um, that you're outside of the family of God, or that you should question your salvation this morning. That's not what I'm arguing, because ultimately, inevitably, we're all going to fail. And that's the process of sanctification. But what is, what is your overall tenor of life? Um, as you read these things this morning, what is your goal? What is your desire? Um, do you recognize your failure? Do you repent and move on and, and, and commit yourself with confidence the next time to not um, to do the same? Um, that you're, 
that, that a rejection of Jesus is a failure um, to make your faith public. So many people today want to argue that um, Christianity is private. It's personal. You know, it's my relationship with Jesus. Um, I could not be farther than the truth. No man's faith. I love this uh, quote by Calvin. Uh, no man's faith is to be stuffed away secretly in his heart, but openly produced in the sight of men. That if you have a faith that is stuffed away in your heart, it's probably not a faith to be shared much at all because it's not um, faith wrought by God. Faith wrought by God is a, is, is, is a faith that was born out of the blood of Jesus Christ, extended to you with a new heart, and that the death, the burial, and the resurrection has so overwhelmed you in the love and the graciousness of God um, that, that He conquered death, He conquered the hell, and He conquered the grave for His glory, but also in securing of your salvation, that there is a real true sense where, where Paul himself could say that Jesus Christ died for me, for me, yes, for the Father, but also for me. And thus, um, a faith like that is a faith that should not and cannot be contained. It is a faith that should be lived out and declared before all men, all the nations, all believers, all unbelievers. You know, uh, one pastor I was listening to this week said, you can't keep resurrected men secret. Isn't that, or shouldn't that be the truth? That that's the tragedy of many faithless Christians, including myself, that we live altogether too much like the dead men that we once were, accomplishing little to nothing, doing nothing, because with all in honesty, um, many days we really truly believe much of, of nothing. But that whenever Christ saves us, He saves us to carry the gospel message in vocal form. Um, to the lost, that a man will never be saved outside of the declaration of God's Word. That's what Paul's argument is in Romans. How will they hear if they don't have a preacher, if there's not a declarer, if there's not someone to carry the truth? Christians throughout the ages have always believed this, that faith is to be a public faith. Biblical faith is a, a public faith. That doesn't mean that you need to go and you need to badger and you need to every single conversation that you um, encounter. It has to end necessarily in a gospel conversation. But the overall tenor of our lives should be a desire that men be saved and that we, as in whatever context God has given us, um, whether it's just simply in the home um, or in, in, in a place of work, that the relationships that we build should um, be working towards a goal of the sharing of the gospel, the declaration of the gospel um, with those, those men. You say, but I'm timid. I'm timid. I know I am too. <laughs> I am too. Um, so was Timothy. Second Timothy. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. Second Timothy. Um, it's probably born out of Paul's correction of, at least in part, Paul's encouragement correction of Timothy and his timidness. 2 Timothy 1.8, you read Paul, and he writes to Timothy and he says these words, Timothy, my son in the faith, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ before time began, but now has been revealed by the, the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed." 
For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. So Paul, or Timothy, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and, and Hermogenes. The, the, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. Going too fast. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. And the Lord grant him that he find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. And he says there's multiple things that you and I should not be ashamed of. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, of the gospel message, he says. He says, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed because I'm suffering. Um, don't be ashamed of the church. And don't be ashamed of um, what, where I'm at in my chains. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed. We must, be ashamed, we must not be ashamed of the testimony of Christ, the servants of Christ or the sufferings of Christ because God, why? Because God is able to keep them until that day because He grants mercy to those who are not ashamed. Can you imagine Timothy struggling and pastoring, struggling and to know what's right and to what's wrong and feeling and urging and, and having the feeling and the urging of the Spirit of God to battle and to preach and to disciple. And someone comes to him and says, look, man, like, look what happened to Paul. You sure you want to carry this on? Um, you don't want to be like that. That guy's rotting away in prison somewhere. You know, That guy's doing something um, wrong. He's rotting away in prison somewhere. His, imagine his ministry now. He'd love to be out preaching the gospel, but where's he at? Look where it got him. Like You shouldn't follow in Paul's footsteps. You know, maybe you should take a much more progressive approach. A little bit more, um, not quite out there, you know. Uh, don't burn the candle at both ends. Don't give it all, you know. Um, take your time. Make a more progressive, a long-term approach um, with this or that. I mean, you don't want to end up in prison like Paul did. What's Paul say? Paul says, Timothy, don't you worry about me. And don't you be ashamed of me. Um, because of my chains. Because of what I did, because because what I did in my faithfulness to the Lord, um, in, in not being ashamed and carrying the gospel and fulfilling my commandment, um, that, that, listen, like what I did um, isn't a result of unfaithfulness or, or or this or that. Know that what I committed to the Lord and my change, like what I did, they can't take away. Like it's laid up in heaven, Timothy. And know that whatever you do for the Lord, they cannot touch. And don't be convinced that simply because this happened and I'm in change and I'm going through suffering, that I did anything wrong. And don't think that it meant nothing. Know this, that what happened, like it's in heaven now. It's eternal. It's glorious. It's, 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 it's wonderful. That, that, that our sufferings and our labor, that's part of the point. Like our sufferings and our labor and the things that we give to God, often days we want to just heap up the accolades and we want to know that what we're doing is worth something. Paul's saying, Timothy, like don't struggle so much with that, with the external. Don't look at me. Um, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of the chains. Um, hold your confidence. Hold the faith. I wasn't ashamed. I knew that what I gave to the Lord that He would keep until that day. That whenever I'm laying up treasures on that day, 
that those things will be tried by fire and they will not be burned up like wood, hay, or stubble. Um, They will be gold, silver, and precious stones. So don't be ashamed. Don't fear men. They can't take away what you have committed unto Him. He is faithful to keep it until that last day. So Timothy, preach the gospel. Hold fast the, the sound words. Don't look for the accolades of men and the pleasures of men. Look to Christ, what He's called you to do, and believe in Him and know that He's able to commit it and keep it until that last day. We must not be ashamed of Christ's gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. That many of us, myself included, um, often days don't share the gospel because we're afraid that we, don't, we won't do it good enough. You know? We're afraid that we're not the perfect evangelist, you know? We think that we need to learn a little bit more. We think that we need to, and that's true, you know? You should always be in the process of sanctification. You should always be growing in Christ. You should always be adding to your tool belt, spiritually speaking. You should always have more Scripture. You should always be soaked in it. Um, but, but, but listen, like it doesn't say there, Paul doesn't say in Romans chapter 1, like I am not ashamed of the, of, uh, the gospel of Christ because like, I'm good enough. Because I'm a great evangelist, because I've studied this much, or I'm skillful in persuasion. Like he says, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for uh, for all those who believe. Doesn't it, it, it just boggle your mind? Is it boggles mine that the greatest evangelist in all the world, even the apostle himself, was not good enough to save any soul? That he submitted himself 100% totally to the faithfulness of the gospel. The, 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 the ultimate goal of, a, of, a, of an evangelist is not to succeed in bringing men to Christ. Like that's what he desires and that's what he wants and that's part of the impetus behind it. But the goal of, a, of, a, of an evangelist is not to be um, the best. It's to be faithful. It's to be faithful to the Word. It is to come to the Word and totally submit themselves to the Gospel message thus that whenever the faithfulness of the Word goes forth and the declaration of the truth, God accomplishes the work. So don't be ashamed of the gospel, because if you come back and nobody comes to Christ, um, the, the power wasn't in you, it was in the gospel. And it's still committed unto the Lord that day, and He's able to accomplish um, what He desires through that. That oftentimes we are fearful and ashamed because um, we fear man and we fear ourselves more than we fear God. That's the issue. That to reject Christ um, is to fail to be faithful proclaimers and declarers of God's truth and particularly His gospel to a lost and a dying world it is to cower down thinking that we're not enough. And you know what? That's true. Like That's true. We're not enough. Um, but there's two ways that you can come at that. And one of the ways can be so prideful because you think that everything rests on you. you know, And you, and we, we, you carry it off as a, as, a, as a humble man. But all it is is pride um, in, in, in a deceptive form. Um, it masks itself as humility, like, oh, I'm not good enough. You're not. That's the whole purpose of the gospel. That, that you would cling to Christ as, he, as your sufficiency. And in your weakness, you humble yourself in obedience um, to give the truth of God's Word and declare God's truth on the matter. And you trust Him to do the work. And He's crowned King as a result of it. But listen, so that's what it looks like. But I don't think that that's all that it looks like. I think that um, being ashamed of Jesus also looks like being ashamed of his words. Being ashamed of his words. That's what he says. He says, um, whoever, whoever is ashamed of me, Christ, and his words, 
I take this phrase, my words, to mean the Word of God and the Gospel itself. What is it to be ashamed of Jesus and His words? It's literally to be ashamed of His Word. You know? And I've been there. I've been there in former days. I've squirmed a lot. <laughs> you know, I've been at work and come up, religion will come up and I'll be like, man, I hope this thing doesn't come up. Um, you know, things about family, things about women, things about homosexuality, things about slavery, um, things about babies being dashed upon rocks, things I didn't understand out of the scriptures or things I just didn't like, things about salvation, things about God's sovereignty at one point. It simply just made me very uncomfortable. And the last thing I wanted was for anyone uh, to bring it up because I didn't want to have to talk about it because it just made me uncomfortable. It made me blush. It could mean that. And that we need to come to a submission to God's Word and a joy in it. And we need to love God's Word. I remember battling through certain things, man. And I just, at the beginning, I just, they made me so uncomfortable. And some of them, I just tell you, like, it just, it just, I hated them, you know? But eventually I come to the point to study God's Word and I just, you know, I thought, um, not only am I supposed to accept this, but I am to love it. Like if this is God's Word, I am to love it. I am to take joy in it. I am to rest in it. I am to find peace in it. And I am to find hope in it. And some of the things are just hard to do that with, you know. I mean, that's the process of sanctification. But I think it's even more than that. I think it's even more than just being uncomfortable with His words. I think, I believe in the context we have that it means... Um, also, to, to fail to conform to his words and thought and deed. To reject Christ's authoritative word and to follow our own wisdom for life. I think to be ashamed of Christ in his words could simply look like failing or neglecting to follow Christ according to his word. I think this is what he means by follow me. And again, I'm not saying infrequently, you fail occasionally. I'm saying this is the general principle of your life. You won't follow Christ. You're characterized by refusing to deny self, to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Why? Because you're ashamed of Him. Um, you're ashamed of Him. It is to live in such a way to save your own life. It is to govern your life in a way um, to gain the whole world. It is to fail to own Him before men, not only in word, but also in deed. It's a failure to be conformed to the very image of God. So, so, so those, those passages that make you uncomfortable about the family or about the home or about salvation or about this or about that, um, you look at it and you say with a profession of faith, uh, I think that's true, um, but I'm not so sure that that's for me. Um, or I'll get to that later. Um, if that is the character, uh, habitual character of your life, um, the question would be why? Um, Jesus tells us here, I believe, that the question is, is because you are ashamed of Christ. Um, you're ashamed. You see, there are many people out there today that profess Christ, profess Christianity with their mouth, but deny Him not only in, not, not, not necessarily in, uh, with their mouth, but with their lives. I believe that is to deny Christ. Um, I think that to come to God's Word and to be regularly in it, that the ultimate goal of the Christian life um, is to be conformed to the very image of Christ. Okay? Again, I'm not here talking about something that is um, uh, some depressing way of life. I know that over the last couple of weeks and maybe even today, I've kind of focused in on the negative aspects of it. I think that's what Jesus does. But also, you realize that whenever a person comes to Christ, takes up his cross and follows him with the ultimate joy, he buys the field for the treasure that's in it. That he's given new life in Christ and all of the blessings in heavenly places. The Spirit of God comes alongside him. And with the Word of God, man, they take the, the, the world, the hell, and the flesh to task. 
And they're being conformed into the very image of Christ. It's a daily battle, but it's one worth fighting because every single day Christ becomes more evident and more glorious and displayed more in your life and in mine. That's the nature of the Christian life. You're slaying sins and you're putting on Christ. You're destroying lust and you're putting on love and it becomes a display um, of the character and the nature of God to a lost and a dying world. This is what it means to not be ashamed of Christ and His words. To come to the Word of God that is living and breathing and sharper than any two-edged sword and to lay your heart bare and say, Jesus, make me more like You. And you're willing at that moment, at any time, to not be ashamed of Him or to be ashamed of His words and say, like, if this is what you, you, you require of me, then I will do it. You know, As a soldier to, to, a, to a great king who's given orders, you know, who stands in direct objection to the way that he's thinking, or to the to the orders commanded. Now Jesus stands as the high king of heaven and earth, a monarchy um, with his children, with his soldiers, with his men. And he commands them to, to not only do, but to be certain men. And even in our lack of understanding, we don't lean upon ourselves, but we lean upon him and his understanding. And we begin by virtue of his character to not only do those things, but to love those things. You know, the family, the church, other things. There are things at one point just didn't make sense to me, and I thought, Lord, what are you doing? You know? Um, but over time, God has just He's given me a love for my wife. He's given me a love for my children. He's given me a love for this church. Um, you know? And I love it simply because He loves it. And I'm not ashamed you know, of a lot of that. Um, or any, I shouldn't be ashamed of any of that. I just wonder um, the things that I am ashamed of. I think that's what it looks like. I think that it's... Um, we must not be ashamed of Christ. Um, and if we are, the evidence is in fact in the fact that we will not conform to His Word. We will not deny self. We will not take up our cross and we will not follow Jesus. We won't. We won't. Um, what else does it look like? We must not be ashamed of Jesus because on that day when He comes back, He will be ashamed of us. I think it also looks like being unjustly ashamed of his church. This is out of this text. It was in 1 Timothy chapter 2, right? Paul said, don't be ashamed of me. I think that um, in Acts chapter number 9 has always been a, a blessed passage to me. Um, Acts chapter number 9, what you read is, um, you read the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Um, and I've mentioned this to some of you and some others maybe not. But it all, it, it, whenever God used this, passage in my life, it totally changed my entire view of the church. Uh, it was monumental in my thinking concerning Christ's bride. And it doesn't seem like it should be necessarily on the outskirts um, or superficially, um, but it just changed the way that I thought about everything. Whenever the Apostle Paul is, he's, before he's Paul, he's Saul on the road to Damascus, he's been murdering Christians, he's been zealous about it, um, and uh, God meets him there just uh, knocks him off of his horse and says these words, Saul, Saul, as he fell on the ground, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And the idea here that I want to bring out is, is that um, who was Paul persecuting? You know, He didn't see himself as persecuting Christ. As far as we know, he never saw him, he never met him, but maybe he did. It's hard to say. Um, he lived during the same time, so there could be a very good and uh, uh, 
possibility of an encounter between Christ and Paul at some point. It's not recorded. Um, but who was Paul persecuting? Paul was persecuting the church. Um, Jesus rebukes Paul for persecuting him, but he's also for persecuting the church. He was an enemy of the church. He was a murderer of the church. He was a maligner of the church. He was a blasphemer of the church. Thus, he was a blasphemer of Christ. To persecute the church is to persecute Christ. To oppose the church is to oppose Christ. All throughout Paul's epistles as well, you see that terminology, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Um, you see that communion and the union with Jesus Christ Himself. So there is a sense in which we take care of Christ's bride and in taking care of Christ's bride, we honor our Lord. Why? Because they are one. The head and the body come together in union and we all become one flesh. As in the beginning, you know, you have this union between husband and wife, man and woman, Adam and Eve, and born out of um, Adam um, is made Eve, and they come together in this marriage communion and this covenant, and they become one flesh. Thus, to attack one is to attack both. When Satan attacks Eve, he attacks Adam, and thus, as a unit, they come together in union and communion as one flesh. Paul tells us the same thing is true spiritually of the church in Ephesians chapter 5, that that illustrates the union and the communion between God and His church between the husband and the bride between Christ and the church that we come together we come together one flesh that is Jesus Christ is pierced and gives his life on Calvary for us born out of his rib is a woman a bride to come alongside him and to pick up um, the, the, the banner and the tools to aid him in accomplishing and the task that God the Father had given him to do to reach the nations with the gospel. Thus the church and Christ labor together in some sense today um, to carry out the, the mission that God has given. And thus to attack the bride is to attack the church. So I believe to be ashamed of the church unjustly is also to be ashamed of Christ to be ashamed of Christ. And that's why Paul encourages Timothy not to be ashamed of the church, not to be ashamed of him, not to be ashamed of this or of that, you know. And I thought about this this week and I thought about our church and I thought, let me just show you one of my weaknesses. If you ever just want to pulverize my spirit or tone up my heart sometime, um, tell me that you're afraid to invite someone to this church or to any church because you're afraid that it will turn them away from Christ for whatever reason. You say, well, I want, to see the, I want them to see the beauty of Christ. But if we bring them here, there's just certain things that aren't quite ready. You know? Like the music just isn't quite up to par or the preaching, you preach too long or you, you do this or the, the, the environment just isn't right and I'm just not sure that I can bring them there. I think it will turn away from them from Christ. What are we doing then? You know? You know? I look out here and I see beauty. I see glory. And just like with the gospel message, if we think that we're going to wait until we've got it all ironed out and we just bring a, you know, a 100%, just, just fire it home, you know, just fire it home and just you know, downrange and we're going to hit it every time and we're waiting to perfect something um, for us to, to utilize it, then, then we'll never utilize it because it's never perfected in this life. If you're waiting for us to be something that we're not, or something that we will never be before, you're, before we're willing to, 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 to evangelize or, or to show the world who we are. You know, like I come in here and I look at you and I think over the last five years or two years or three years, like I know it's been messy and I know it's difficult and I know that we're growing, but I think, I think like that's the thing that we want to tell people about. Like that's the thing that makes it beautiful, you know? 
But that's the thing. Like it's it's like a, a husband and a wife that never you're afraid to invite anybody over because you're afraid to bring them into the mess. You know. It's like if, if you're waiting to get everything ironed out with children, you'll never invite anybody over. But how comforting it is sometimes to bring somebody else into that with you and walk alongside you with that, you know? Like I understand that we are not where we ought to be and that we are growing as a congregation, but I think that that is one of the most beautiful things um, in, in all the world, you know? And I think this morning that if Jesus Christ can come down and fellowship with us and be with us and come alongside with us and He's willing to not be ashamed of us, then we should not be ashamed of each other. Now, there's some things that probably should be ashamed of. You know, if there's sin in the church, if there's this, if there's that, if there's some immorality, if there's, if, 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 if there's certain things that you and I should be ashamed of. You know, but outside of that, don't be ashamed of who we are and the fact that we're growing and the fact that we're progressing and the fact that, yes, we don't have everything ironed out today, but it is our ultimate goal to glorify God and coming to Him through the process of sanctification um, to where in five years we do look more like His Son. Like, and that's what people need to see. That's exactly what people need to see. They need to see believers not perfect, but believers being perfected in the glories of Christ. Like, and that's beautiful. That's the beauty of His bride. I remember coming from a movement, man, we wouldn't fellowship with anybody, <laughs> you know? We just thought poorly of every single bride, I think, you know? God convicted my heart one day, and, I, and, I, and coming out of what I came out of and, and moving to where I am today, like I think about myself 10 years ago, and I think, man, I would have not fellowship with that guy. Not from here to there, but from there to here, you know? Damon Joseph, seven years ago, um, would have labeled Damon Joseph today a heretic, and I think all along the way, and I would have fellowship with me today. I'd have probably preached against this church. I'd have preached against the doctrine. I'd preached against this. And I think, I think, man, I look back now and I think, man, Jesus would fellowship with me. And we won't fellowship with a lot of people in whom Jesus is fellowshipping with today. Um, and I'm not saying, I'm not up here being ecumenical, and I'm not saying that everything and anything goes, you know. But I am going to say that I am very careful to label men or churches. I will preach more on concepts and principles. Why? Because I recognize and realize that God's church is not just made up of this church, um, that it is His bride. So before we go maligning any church as a whole, you remember that Christ's bride is in there. You be careful what you say about Christ's bride. You come into my home, I come into your home. You know, you, we need to be careful what we say about my bride, you know? Many of you men know you'll go to task over that. God's given you the, uh, uh, the, the privilege in the, in the, to, to protect and to, and, to, and to stand in front of and to provide for in this and that. How much more will Christ protect His bride? How much more should we protect His bride? That to reject, to reject Christ's bride is to reject Christ. You know, this idea today that you can be a private Christian and you don't need a congregation and you don't need a church um, is, 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 is foreign to Scripture. Jesus Christ saves men into bodies. And all of the epistles are geared towards churches that are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. I mean, read 1 Corinthians. Read these other churches, man, who were just falling apart at different places. But, but Paul comes alongside, and he comes alongside them. Why? Because he knows that they're on a process of sanctification. And, and, and he doesn't alienate himself from them. He comes to them. And he provides himself as he comes alongside them, just as the Spirit does to him. That in an individual believer, the Spirit of God comes alongside as the paraclete, as the one who comes alongside to aid us in our sanctification process. 
That he doesn't, the Spirit of God doesn't come uh, wait for us to get things in order or come when things are all right or are or, or, or put in the right place or everything is hunky-dory. He comes to us because we're not. Like, and you should come to a church and I come to a church even as the pastor, the leader and the example because I am not. And the church is one of the great means that God has, has given us to make us what we're not. You know? And to be ashamed of that. And to introduce people to that. Because you're afraid that they're going to see something that's going to make it untenable. Like, is to be ashamed of Christ's bride. Whenever it's not moral. Whenever it's not moral. I don't think we should be ashamed of Christ's bride. I think we should be celebratory of Christ's bride and what he's accomplishing in it. And we should be ashamed of churches that are, are, are people or bride that, that, that won't do that. But if you get a church that's preaching the word and, and trying to be like Christ, man, that is something that all the world needs to see. And it's not perfect. And that's exactly why we're here. We're not here to be perfect. We're here to be perfected. And we encourage anybody to come alongside us. And that is not something to be ashamed of. We should not be ashamed of Jesus. We should not be ashamed of the testimony of His Word. We should not be ashamed of um, conforming to Christ and being like Him and looking like Him. And we should not be ashamed of um, His bride who is, who is not where they ought to be but is constantly, continually being sanctified and perfected to look more like Him. And that's what we hope for this church. We hope that in five years we're different. Why? Because sanctification not only happens in individual believers, but also in bodies and in churches. As they become more healthy and become more conformed to Christ, we inevitably change. You know, and that rubs some people the wrong way. Like we don't, Some people don't want it to change. Let me tell you, if you're with Christ, it must change. It must. As the Spirit and the church come together, like that's why He's given us all these things, the Word and Spirit and His church, so that we will change and become more like Christ. Um, Hebrews Chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 and we'll be done. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2, I love it. Verses 10 and 11. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus Christ enters into the world, is perfected through sufferings. Why? Because he, he bore, out, of him, out of his rib has birthed a people, um, a bride in which he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Can you imagine that today? That we are ashamed of certain things and certain people of which whom Jesus Christ is not ashamed. Isn't that a wonderful picture? That one day you're going to get to heaven. You're going to stand before Him as He is. And you're going to be thinking about all the things that were before. You're going to be, or you may be thinking about all the things, or even in this life you're wondering of all the things that Christ is ashamed of. As I sin today and I fall and I'm in perfection and this and that. And the Bible says that in Christ He did these things and that one day you'll stand before Him and guess what? He won't be ashamed. If you'll deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Him um, on that great day, um, He will not be ashamed. And He is not ashamed today to call you brethren, to come alongside you, to grab arms with you, and to save you, and to fight with you. And then Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, I love this as well. 
These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly, if they had been called, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be their God. For he has prepared a city for them. God looks down upon those who in Abraham like faith, love Christ, love his word, love the brethren, who are looking for a better country and whom have not yet received the promises. And even in their imperfection, he looks to those and he's not ashamed He looks for those who have their hearts and minds and affections on things above and live in such a way who do not cling to the temporal things of this life, to to materials and possessions and accolades, because they're all passing away. And God says, when I see a people like that, I'm not ashamed to be their God. I will not be ashamed. And that's why Jim Elliott says, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to attain that which he cannot lose. And what will that man not lose? He will not lose God. Why? Because God has called him his father. God has called him his brother. And God has called him his God. And this type of people, Abraham-like faith, who are not ashamed of him and not afraid to abandon all of these things, will never, Christ will never be ashamed. And we could go on and on and on and on. Um, I just want to call attention one more time to the fact that those who are ashamed of him in this life will in turn arrive on that great day and Jesus Christ will not be able to say that of them. But as judge of all the world and in turn, the Son will deny them and reject the entrance into his eternal kingdom. Why? Because they spent their entire lives denying him in his word, in his gospel, and in his conduct and in his church and i pray that the lord drives that home to you this morning if you're an unbeliever i pray that they are more than just simply words perceived as a scare tactic but the truth of god's word this is a reality and while i don't generally promote scare tactics i think there's a sense in which jesus is exactly doing that very thing i mean he says the guy who doesn't fear who can kill the body Um, is a foolish man, but he should fear he who can kill body and soul in hell. Matthew 7 rings true. Matthew 24, I believe it is, in the parable of the talents, where the man takes the one talent and he hides it in the um, ground. He he buries it. Why? Because he sees the master as a harsh taskmaster and a harsh man. So whenever the the, the master comes back that gave him the talent, told him to invest it, um, what does he do? What does he do? He, he looks at him and this is the, he says, take that worthless servant, bind him, and cast him into outer darkness. That's the message to the unbeliever this morning. You know what the message to the believer is though? Is that if you're in Christ, he's not ashamed of you to call you brother. And he also gives you certain things, talents to invest in this life. And when he comes back, you know what's going to happen? He's going to give you more. He takes the man who has 10 talents or five talents and he gives him more. That's the nature of the true Christian life, that when God saves us as an image bearer of God, He gives us a new purpose. He reinstates us in a greater fashion than what even Adam was. And He gives us a life to lead. And He gives us tools to do it. We invest them in this life, in our families, in our churches, as in the world. And what does God do? He, he, he honors that and glorifies that and even multiplies that. That's the idea. 
That's the nature of it. That's the nature of the not ashamed. The not ashamed. You may be familiar with this poem. There was an African pastor that um, wrote this poem, and I want to read it to you. It was his, I think it's a commitment of an African pastor, maybe. You can Google it online. He says, I'm part of a fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. This decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane walking, cheap living, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, and popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith. I lean on His presence. I walk by patience. I lift by prayer and I labor by power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way rough. My companions few. My guide reliable. My mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till I'll know, work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problems recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Let me add, he won't be ashamed. He won't be ashamed. You say, that seems like a little too much. Right? Maybe it is. And that's why you'll never be remembered. Not that he wanted to be remembered either. And not that Jim Elliott wanted to be remembered. But those are the types of men that leave imprints in this world that can never be forgotten. Jim Elliott says he makes his ministers a flame of fire and he asks this question, am I ignitable? God deliver me from the dread of abestus of, the dread abestus of other things. Saturate me with the oil of the Spirit that I may be a flame. The flame is transient, short-lived. Canst thou bear this, my soul? Short life. In me there dwells the Spirit of God, great, uh, great short-lived, whose zeal for God's house consumed him. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. I love this. God, I pray, light these, light these idle sticks of my life, and I may burn up for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a life full of one like yours, Lord Jesus. And you say that's a bit much, don't you think? He stands. These men stand as men that, yes, they gave it their all. They stand as emblems of what we ought to be in our day. Again, you say that's a little bit too much. I know it is from our natural minds. But was it too much for Christ to do the same? And that's why that's the point of the passage. You should not be ashamed of Him in giving it all because He was not ashamed of you in giving it all for you. Thus, let us not be ashamed. Let's pray. God, we love and thank you and praise you for the privilege of calling upon your name. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as people out of the world. Father, saved by your grace. Father, we're reminded of our natural man ourselves with our tendency this morning to fear man um, rather than fear God. God, we're convicted in the deepest recesses of our souls of our love for self. 
God, we think about all the things that we cling to. We think about all the things that we love. We think about all the things that we don't. Father, and you remind us of the glories of Christ and uh, the need to reorient our mind and affections. Father, you remind us of the fact that your son was not ashamed to call us brethren. Your son was not ashamed to call us God. Your son was not ashamed to suffer for our namesake. Your son was not ashamed to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow you. He was not ashamed of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. He was not ashamed to suffer. He was not ashamed to call his bride his bride. Many days when we're ashamed of the gospel because it's a foolishness, because it's foolishness to men. Many days when we're ashamed to conform to Christ because of, we're afraid that we'll look like fools to men. And many days when we're ashamed of, ashamed of your bride because we're afraid that we'll bring people in and it'll look foolish to men. You recognize, or we recognize that your son thought none of it foolishness, but the very wisdom of God. And thus, Father, we too should never be ashamed. We should never be ashamed of your gospel because we recognize it's the power of God unto salvation. We should never be ashamed of your word because it is that means by which you conform us to Christ. And we should never be ashamed of your bride because it's the means of grace that you provided to make us more like your son. So let us walk away, Father, with our heads held high in some sense this morning as we seek to honor and to glorify your word, Father, and to not be ashamed. Help us not to walk away with our eyes low, Father, our heads hanging, um, desiring to be... Um, to crawl into our holes this morning because we've not been enough. We recognize that. We have not been enough and we never will be. And that's why we need Jesus. So help us in this moment to cling to Him, Father, and to rest in His righteousness for us and His work, Father, in us. And just joy in the glory of the person, the character, the work, and the nature of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.